previously on Popping Collars. Uh, like this, it's about depression and trying to deal with the world. And I was trying to make a parallel between this demoniac and how Kendrick Lamar looked hanging from the back of that car, flailing about and like zoning out and his eyes kind of popping back into his head. And um, somehow that really worked for especially one particular parishioner who struggles with depression, who came up and said, that's the best sermon ever. He didn't know who Kendrick Lamar was. And it was the best sermon ever, by the way. But (laughs) (laughs) Trademark. (laughs) Trademark. to episode 72 of Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of faith and pop culture or meaning and culture. We've never really um, landed on a tagline, especially this season. Um, I'm hosting today. My name is Liz Easton. I'm the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Nebraska. And with me today is the um, original or semi-original. I hear a smoke alarm. Yeah, what's going on? That was the microwave. I'm sorry. (laughs) I told William to be quiet, but he didn't think about the microwave. I thought a truck was coming through your living room. (laughs) With me today are uh, pretty much the whole, the cast and crew of Poppin' Callers. It's our little team Poppin' Callers. Ricardo Avila, who is coming to us from San Mateo, California. Ricardo, tell us, what are you up to? What's new? Well, Liz, there's a lot new. Uh, As of a week and a day ago, I was the interim rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Long Beach, California. But as of October 15th, one week and six days from now, I will be the new rector at St. Luke's again uh, in Los Gatos, California. So I am in that liminal space of time in which I'm freaking out and also (laughs) happy and also tired. And my car that I've had for 10 years died on the trip from Long Beach, California, northwards. And so I have to buy a new car, which I've never done in my life before. And I'm told it's a nightmare. I have such a hard time saying goodbye to cars. So I grieve for you. When I saw your Facebook post, I was like, oh, no. Do you name your cars? Yes. That is Uh, eerily on theme. Oh, Oh, yes. (laughs) And with that, also joining us today is Betsy Gonzalez in Alexandria, Virginia. Betsy, what are you up to? What's new? I'm using this podcast to avoid grading papers because I'm a high school teacher and I'm a chaplain here at the Episcopal High School in Alexandria. And finally, our fearless leader, Greg Knight, coming to us from Palm Beach, Florida. Greg, what's happening? Hi, Liz. Nothing much. Everything's going pretty well. I survived a youth lock-in this past Friday night, uh, which, uh, as I get older, I'm starting to realize is something I should start bragging about, that I I survived sleeping on the floor for another year, so... Well, today's episode uh, 72, as I said, is based on kind of a cultural moment in this moment, but honestly, a cultural moment for like the last 40 years. And that's going to be the work of Stephen King, the horror and not just horror novelist that um, is one of the best selling authors ever uh, since 1974, when his book Carrie was first published. 
Um, he has sold more than 350 million books, which is astonishing. Wow. 54 of those are novels, um, 200 short stories, and there have been more than 60 feature film adaptations of his work. And this is just sort of a, a moment in pop culture where there are a lot of either reboots of films that have been done previously and are now being remade. So it is a really great example of that huge blockbuster. And I read this fascinating quote recently that every single thing in um, Stephen King's bibliography has been optioned. Every single piece of work that he has ever written already has a film option. Wow. So, yeah. But I thought that we would kick it off by just doing a little roundtable check-in. What is your favorite thing from the Stephen King library? I would have to say <laughs> I love The Shining, the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because it's a slow movie, but I like, I think I've seen it three times and every time I see it, I like it more. And especially the scene towards the end where Jack Nicholson is actually in that old painting Mm -hmm. uh, of people at the, at the bar that just flips me out. But the book, I actually heard it on audiobook of 112263, which is the John F. Kennedy assassination, go back in time thing. I loved it. I was listening to it on audiobook. It's the thing where I had to like sit in the car for 20 minutes to get to the end of the chapter because I couldn't stop listening. So those are two of my favorite things. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm all the stand all the time. Mm. Loved it. Stole mine. You got it. Oh, my. it from you. Well, because it's not, you know. It's it's post-apocalyptic whatever disease such you know, whatever's happened, right? And I love that kind of apocalyptical literature, um, that dystopian thing and how what what we're all up to when all of that's kind of stripped away. I love the religious imagery of it and the all all of that, you know, for for a high schooler, I was like, This is just the best. And then I love the, I actually really like the miniseries. With Molly Ringwald in it and Gary oh. Sinise, like I, I, I really dug that, and um, I think it's one of the reasons that I love so much the Passage series because I think they kind of, they, they come, they're like cousins, um, and so when I found that, I was like, oh, it's like the Stand 2.0. I'm so excited. <laughs> so that's my favorite. The Stand is great. So good. Love it. It also I was just... like the first like book I read that was like legit. Like baller linked book, like yeah, paperback, paper so thick, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm carrying this around because I'm reading it." Yeah, it's right. It's <laughs> I'm a late Stephen King adopter, and um, eleven twenty two sixty three was the first Stephen King book that I read, which I love because I'm really into time travel. I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last year, uh, um organization affiliated with the Omaha public library did a series called book or movie where everybody had to read a book and then show up and do a private screen of the film and then do vote. You had to vote on whether you liked the book or the movie better. And they did the shining, which was the first time I'd read that book and the first time I had seen the film. But then I also like not to just go down a rabbit hole of all the great Stephen King. I love Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. I think that is an incredibly poignant story and I have never seen that movie too many times if you know like if it's on if you're flipping through the channels and it's on it's like oh yeah i could i could jump in here for 30 minutes or something and just watch it i think we talked a little bit about this at the end of the last show when we were doing your staff pick liz but sort of whenever you experience 
something as a child, it sticks with you in a way that it doesn't when you're an adult. I, I remember being a kid laying in my bed at night and my parents had the television on in the living room uh, after I had gone to bed. And I remember them uh, watching Cujo the dog and like the car and the screaming and it didn't matter. It didn't matter that I couldn't see it because I could like recreate it in my head. Probably made it even worse. It was horrible. It was so horrifying. He was talking a little bit about how he really believes that as a writer, he was just suited to write horror that he could have tried writing more literary fiction. He could have tried writing in a different genre, but that he really just gets fired up by horror. And that's really where his gifts are. And um, he talked about kind of trying to raise the bar of genre fiction. And in this interview, he mentioned that there are plenty of critics who, when something is popular or within a particular genre, they just um, dismiss it out of hand, which I thought was interesting. And one thing that a quote that I wrote down was he said, some critics take their ignorance of popular culture uh, is a badge of intellectual prowess which I thought was interesting that, and then another is um, he said, if something exactly if for critics, if something is accessible to a lot of people, then it's dumb because most people are dumb. (laughs) That's elitist. And I found that really um, encouraging, I think for our little podcast and just in, in the work that we do in general, trying to bridge pop culture with um, the faith lives of our community Oh, that's sure. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to start this podcast is that we found great meaning in popular culture and that for we could think about over the trajectory of our lives as young people, as, you know, as in our 20s, middle age, that popular culture has played a large role in our religious lives, that it's not something that's divorced from it or, you know, not highbrow enough. And then I'm going to go over here and, you know think about, you know, theology, and it's not connected with this album I'm listening to. It's all connected. And that when we poo-poo that and get too too intellectual, we're missing something that is really mm-hmm. turning on a lot of people who are in our communities to the detriment of actually talking about the gospel in a way that that reaches out and speaks differently um, with, right. a, with a more modern vernacular, perhaps. One of the things that has irritated me so much in this, like the last year politically, and it's, I think it's actually been around forever. I've noticed this in every season of political campaigning is this idea that everybody else is stupid. Like everyone else is dumb. (laughs) Somehow I managed to be the smart one. (laughs) And which, you know, the, the elitism of that. And there's something sort of inspiring about a transcendent creative voice bringing that all together that people of all kinds, you know, all different education levels, whatever are going to key into some of his work at different times and in different ways. So when I was little, uh, not little, but I was, I was like 12 or 13 and I was reading a lot of the Stephen King books, like, you know, the big, the stand and, you know, Salem's lot and it, and uh, my mother, my mother who didn't speak English could tell from the book covers that they were horror, you know, they were (laughs) horror books and she would say, well, why are you reading that? You should be reading the Bible. <laughs> I remember just being in a particularly sassy mood one day and being like, Bible's not fun. <laughs> this is more fun. <laughs> and so I had to kind of sneak it sometimes and uh, do it in my room or whatever. And, uh, but I remember thinking, 
I, I did say that, and you know, there's some truth to that. You know, the Bible does have its moments, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it doesn't compare with people under a dome suffocating. I guess I don't know, but uh, so that's one thing. I just it's just a memory. I think that you're right, Liz. I think that uh, I think that what Stephen King was saying there is also right. That that you know there is this sense of there's there's some art out there that is beneath us, and we're just not we're not going to engage it at, at the same level as we're going to engage other art. So, for instance, he's a hundred percent correct. A horror movie is never going to win best picture at the Oscars. Like it's just not going to happen because it's never going to be considered. Even if it is a masterpiece, the shining is a masterpiece. Comedy never be considered. Right. Except for silence of the lambs. Because right. it's, Big because time. it's, yeah. it's beneath the category. Well, I guess silence of the lambs is kind of, it gets pretty or, close. It's like a thriller, but yeah. Yeah. I guess. That's okay. Your point is true. I think. Um, I, all, all that is to say that I think the other side of that is true as well from the other end. Like as a horror fan, I can definitely see someone saying, oh, I love horror movies because critics hate it. And mm-hmm. I want to be, you know, I'm with the people and the people like horror movies. Right. And I think that that's that's a lot of um, what the conversation that I see playing out is you know, when it comes to politics and when it comes to sort of like, I don't know, social issues or whatever is like, well, because you like elites hate it, I love it. And I'm going to revel in it. Well, it's, yeah, we all can't become that Eddie Izzard sketch, you know, where he's the priest and he's like, you know, today's sermon comes from a magazine I found in a hedge. Right. Trying to make it cool, right. And I, what I love about King is that um, you know the horror genre, and I think we've seen this mostly in movies, right? Ha- goes up and down. That it, it will it rise this wave, and we're at a high peak of consistent horror movies. Horror movies are not for Halloween anymore, right? They're coming out all year long. You know, on the on the wake of you know the movie Get Out, right, with racial commentary in set inside a thriller horror movie kind of thing. You, Harkens back to you know uh, Oscar Romero, Oscar not Oscar Romero. He's the martyred priest. George, George Romero. <laughs> George Romero. George Romero. Sorry, oh, sorry, thing. sorry. There's Oscar. blood in both. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, but you know the social commentary of Night of the Living Dead, like those sorts of things. So my question then, I think coming alongside of that, Betsy is about horror in general and the resurgence of his work recently. Why do you think that's having a moment? right now and that's sort of a loaded question but what is it about um like a good horror movie and stephen king's work in particular is viscerally scary it makes you afraid on our last episode i talked about when i was watching it in the theater a guy actually screamed out loud (laughs) like an adult man actually screamed out loud like he was terrified you know i wonder about what that experience does for us in general and maybe why is it it seems to be important for us right now. The beauty of art is that it makes you feel something. And when, 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 when something is able to tap into that fear response, I think that's why horror is that this is a genre that attracts a lot of people because it, it makes them feel um, Mm -hmm. in a very real way. What's happening on screen, socially speaking, the way I would answer it is that I feel like we're in a time where 
we get so much information and it's so easy to become numb that having the opportunity to feel something in art is compelling to people. Yeah. So just piggybacking on that, I, I want to say, I was going to say this earlier before you asked your question, Liz, a lot of Stephen King novels have this strong sense of morality to them. Like the kids band together to fight evil or the good guys who are trapped under the dome, try to fight the, the wicked boss who's causing mayhem or, you know, um, Carrie even, you know, she, she was bullied and picked on and that wasn't okay. So she took her revenge again, not always, but there is that strong sense of like, we've got to fight evil and we need to band together. And, you know, there's a sense of right and wrong. Doesn't always happen, but maybe that's good for our times to, you know, take in, of course, horror and frightening. I mean, you can see that on the news, but there, I, I do feel there's an undercurrent of battling evil, surviving evil, and um, finding a way through that maybe that speaks to people. Maybe that maybe that speaks to people too. His particular brand of horror has a strong sense of right and wrong, good and evil, and mm-hmm. um, that's something to hold on to in the face of chaos. It's that ability that he's had to have scared you when you were little, and that he can still scare you now. Mm-hmm. And the fears of children. He has the just that ability to get in the head of kids of people of any age to find what is really the, the fear isn't really the jump scare. The fear is what's deep down inside pet cemetery. The fear is death and mortality and all of those sorts of things and wanting to extend life and these parents, you know, with their children and all of those sorts of things. That's the fear that lies underneath it all. It isn't that the little the cutting the Achilles and oh, it's so gross and that's really <laughs> gross and it gets you and it's really, yeah, but it's also, he knows the underlying fear and that's mm-hmm. what he taps into, I think. Well, and he has said about it. And I think that this is true for, uh, for other works of his, that it was really an exploration of childhood trauma and and the trauma of growing up and growing old and the conflict around coming home again. And I think you see that kind of played out in his work a lot. And I wonder, like, I think that there might be two sides of this. We might experience this for two of the same reasons at the same time or something. One is, I think, what Greg is saying, to be forced or shocked into feeling feelings when we are so overwhelmed with feeling like we're recording this podcast the day after the, um, the horrifying tragedy in Las Vegas, which I don't know about you guys, but I spent all day feeling kind of numb and overwhelmed. So there's something about going to a horror movie that pushes you out of that and makes you feel things again. I wonder too, if there's a other side of that where um, we are being given help or practice in actually engaging with our feelings around trauma or sadness or fear, if it could be both of them. I like, I like that it became a big thing this year because there's, it's probably one of his most thematic books. Like there's, there's very, there's not a whole lot of realism in that novel, right? Like, I mean, the, the story plays out, it's, it's kids and adults and, you know, dealing with this evil force and stuff like that, but it's also like cosmic turtles. And, you know, I mean, there's like a lot of really weird sort of random stuff in that book. And it's easy to kind of chalk it up to like, 
oh yeah, early '80s Stephen King. He's on cocaine, and you know that's that's where the weirdness <laughs> happens. You know that kind of stuff. But um, but the thing that I, you know, there's there's one part of the novel it, that everyone uses to to say why Stephen King is a crackpot writer, and it's the it's the uh, the orgy scene basically yeah. between the kids after they kill the the creature the first time. And I mean, like, but Which you know, everyone will say really quick, I want to interrupt because I feel like popping collars rarely has trigger warnings, but everybody would say that this scene is like the weirdest thing that's ever been published in a popular novel ever. Not just Stephen King. Like it, and was, it is weird. Like it's, weird. it's, it's so weird that it should shake you out of the novel and make yeah. you realize that this is, a, this is a situation where kids are having to make decisions as if they were adults. And that's what, that's what trauma does to you is right. that you experience this, you experience this horrible stuff when you're a child. And now that you're an adult, you're still making, the, you're still making decisions as if you were a child. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's, um, like that's the thing is that that's something that you can say in a novel that won't translate onto a screen. Right. right. And, and I, I think that that's, um, that's another compelling part of the whole Stephen King thing is that at the end of the day, he's a, he's a writer, he's a novel writer and he's dealing with much bigger concepts than film. Kubrick mm-hmm. did great with it, but even he couldn't film what a writer can put on the page. True. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first read Stephen King, he had all these epigraphs at the beginning of his chapter, at the beginnings of his chapters that were like lyrics from songs. Like that's where I learned about Bruce Springsteen. There were like lyrics from, you know, Born to Run or Thunder Road that tied into whatever was happening in the chapter. And these epigraphs were pop culture things. They weren't like Emily Dickinson. They were Bruce Springsteen. They were Bob Dylan. And the other thing I remember him doing, I don't know if he still does it, he would use like all caps a lot to like mm-hmm. make big points or people were shouting. And so there were this visual on the page that um, I remember some critic calling immature or the sign of a bad writer. You know, they have to, they can't just, sh- sh- he can't just show, he has to tell yes, and he can't no, just yeah. tell, but he, he has to do it in all caps. And, but and we so would call that postmodern off. now. Like Dave Eggers does that <laughs> and people are like, wow, what a genius. Yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, back then. This podcast's taking a turn. (laughs) We're coming for you, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Eggers, what kind of a name is that? (laughs) The great Eggers popping collar feud of 2017. (laughs) Oh, man, it's going to go Popping collars versus Dave Eggers. Coming for you, you, (laughs) McSweeney's. Do you wonder, though, like for us as church professionals or whatever you want to call us and our listeners, like, do you ever think that if, I mean, this incredibly popular writer is keying into fear and trauma, do you ever think like we're walking around in communities filled with fear and trauma? And those are themes that I don't access that comfortably in my ministry, other than in really intimate moments of pastoral care. I'm currently doing um, my Abrahamic unit in my Bib Theo class. Mm-hmm. Holy moly, these people, <laughs> right? The, the the deep humanity of what is going on here. You know, the fact that, you know, these names you've heard, these people you can plot on a family tree. Hagar really has no choice in being pregnant, you know, that mm-hmm. she's a slave, right? Instead of calling her a handmaid or whatever we want to do. 
and that, you know, Sarah gets jealous and cross with her. So um, disciplines her as she will. So Mm -hmm. beats her and then she runs off. And like the kids kind of getting into the stories and at a certain point, it's like, who are these people that we're holding up as kind of the forebears, foremothers, forefathers of of this monotheistic tradition, this Abrahamic face. They all trace it back to this guy. Like, what's going on? And I think that for me, what I appreciate is connecting the emotions that they're feeling, even though I hope that we are not beating on people, uh, that we feel about one another. You know, those core elements of teaching the Bible where it's about connecting not only with the divine or, or, or this idea that human beings have of the divine, but connecting with the human beings mm-hmm. and seeing that life is messy and it's full of pain and it's full of not trusting each other or God and that all of that is in there and that that's the stories that you think might be completely unique to you have actually been going on for a really long time. And we can kind of step step into that together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that idea of how we're all flawed and broken. And that ultimately there's a re- redemption there. Well, and that but, God still loves us. God still yeah. makes clothes for Adam and Eve. God doesn't leave these people who don't trust. You know, They've made a deal to stick together and they're sticking together. So uh, in talking about... Uh, Stephen King, I think we've all sort of said at one point, oh, I read this novel when I was in high school, or I saw this thing when I was in high school. And so that's the world that I work in. And I see this a lot, you know, like um, that, that this is the kind of media that attracts teenagers who are, you know, it makes sense, right? Because they're, they're just trying to figure out like how to survive in the world and stuff like that. So horror, horror is fun, because it's all about survival and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um but you know the interesting part of Stephen King stories that I think is very much sort of grounded in what we understand from the gospel is that none of the protagonists overcome whatever it is that they need to overcome alone. They always have to work with like other people, and they always have to have other people have to have their back in order to overcome it. The stand—that's what it's all about is that you're not going to do this on your own. You're going to need this community to support you and, and get you through to the other side. Danny's going to need help. He's not going to do it on his own in the shining. Like all of these, right. all of these stories involve like stand by me. All of these stories involve these kids having to work together. You're not going to have to do this on your own. You're not going to have to save yourself. We're going to save each other. Yeah. And our, chapel talk today we were gonna you know we had planned after doing our blessing of the animals yesterday uh to talk about saint francis today in chapel and then and then the the violence and death of last night happens and it's kind of like well are we going to and i immediately was like well we can't sing all things bright and beautiful we can't do that you know they you know that's just that's going to seem tone deaf we can't do it and and i love my music director he really he really pushed back he said i think in the face of this I think we we stick with creation, that we're in this together, mm. and that we stick with celebrating the beauty of God's creation in the face of somebody destroying creation. And mm. I was like, you know what? Damn it all! You are you are right. And uh, and and then my colleague Timothy Siemens was able to weave in this ability to say that he said when I first saw it, it was exactly what you said, Greg. I wanted to be numb. 
I want to just be numb and I wanted to not engage. You know, to me, I said to him, it reminds me of that um, arcade fire song. I think it's infinite content or whatever. They're like, you know, if I can't be famous, just make it painless. You know, mm-hmm. Just make life painless for me. And he said, but we don't have to be afraid because we're going to do it together. You know, you can't, don't process any of this by yourself. You know, any of what the world throws at us, whether it's this today or something tomorrow, you do not have to be alone. And we'll say it every chapel talk if we need to, because I think high school kids in particular and adults too, because we'll take it on our own and shoulder it all and get over that finish line, no matter the cost. So this is the final segment of our episode. It's called staff picks, not employee picks, not volunteer picks, even staff picks. And today of our staff member with a pick is Betsy. What have you got for us, Betsy? So I am a big audiobook proponent, and there's a particular author that I don't even, I think at this point, purchase the printed word by this author. I go straight to the audiobook and that would be david sedaris yes and love david all day right and so i kind of you know i known that this this new book was kind of out there but i hadn't really kind of gotten around to doing it and so this weekend i was marrying uh i was doing a colleague's wedding and so i knew i was going to have about four hours in the car two hours there two hours back so my lovely family has given me an audible uh you know, gift membership. So I always have credits when I go on. And so I was like, well, you know, I'll get, I'll get the new, the new David Sedaris. So it's a theft by finding and it's his diaries from 1977 to 2002. Wow. And so it's he, the way he writes as a diary is really kind of little snapshots throughout a day. Right. And he's so observant of other people and writes down all of these details. You know, when he's, if you're a fan of his, you'll see gems that began stories that would later be in books. And just just the the trend in his observations, social observations, I found fascinating over time. Just how men treat women, right? You know, when he's having to call the cops on someone outside his apartment, or how men talk about women. I found all of that really fascinating. Because his commentary, even from the time, was like, what are you, why are you talking like that? What are you doing? Or comments on, on racial bias in, in the police from, you know, 1980s uh, New York or, or Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. But he talks about just looking back, you know, wanting, you know, more of his mother or more of David Rakoff or more of his sister Tiffany, all people who have passed on since then um the i'm just kind of getting to the end with september 11th and him living in france and it's all really interesting so i just have to recommend it and i have to recommend him reading it because even if you read the written word you hear his voice in your head even if you're just reading it so why don't you just go for it so so to do do the audiobook and i just i i can't i cannot recommend it more it will be the best you know 14 hours of your life (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to episode 72 of Popping Callers. Uh, you can find all of our podcasts on Stitcher and on iTunes. And please subscribe and rate and review. Um, we want to keep the conversation going. You can also find us on our website, poppingcollarspodcast.com. And of course, you can always find us with the good people of EpiscopalCafe.com. Yes. Part of their podcasting network. You can frequent EpiscopalCafe.com for all of your Episcopal news and opinion needs. Hey. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Betsy. Thanks, Ricardo. We'll see you next time. Keep those colors back. Pop, pop. pop. <laughs>